welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, good morning, Adam. Um, thank good morning. you for thank you for joining me in this conversation, uh, conversations about life. And um, you are a part of um, the community at Jerusalem Farm in Kansas City, which I think is a really interesting thing. I kind of stumbled upon them on accident one time when I was couch surfing, and I ended oh, yeah. up couch surfing at Jerusalem Farm. <laughs> oh, super cool! And it it's was such a neat. It was such a neat experience because um, I was alone in a strange city and not knowing what I was going to find. And then I happened upon this group of young people and they were having a day off. Um, a group of uh, had just left. So okay. we sat around in front, slacklining and uh, sitting around talking. And it, it was just a really neat experience. Super cool. I'm glad you... Uh glad you were able to come here and enjoy yeah. it yeah and thanks so me much too. for for having me on uh, as part of the conversation excited to be well, you're, here you're welcome thanks for joining in so as far as an introduction you were born in a small appalachian town in maryland and um, in a large extended family you're into books good food that you're mom cooks. Um, then you went on to school at West Virginia University and you studied wildlife and fisheries resources and natural resource interpretation. You've taught high school environmental mm -hmm. science. And then you also have your own podcast. It's a sports podcast called uh, Rossi Brothers yeah. Sports Podcast. And um, I do, yeah. It's, it's fun. Yeah. And then you're um, into hiking music and climate change is an issue that's important to you. And then anything else you would like to add as far as just an introduction? Uh, no, it's a pretty good, pretty good overview. Sounds like me. Okay. Thanks. All right. Well, you know, we can go just kind of anywhere with the conversation. Something that's um, important to me is uh, just things involved – with the Christian faith, because I'm a Christian and it's something I think about and try to work out, um, kind of considering, you know, what does it mean? What's the, um, what direction should I go in? And just, you know, it's just kind of one of those foundational things of life. And, yeah. um, I think Jerusalem farm is kind of connected to, um, Catholic social teachings. So um, I think there is a connections, but I don't know about you. Are you, um, mm -hmm. do you identify with the Christian faith or with something yeah. else? Or, okay. So yeah. um, I, I guess just to get started, what is that like for you? How did you get started? And what is that like for you in your life as far as you, the Christian faith? Mm. Yeah. Good, uh, good question. So I'm a cradle Catholic, I guess, first and foremost. So my parents are both practicing Catholics and still are. So that's, I think, simple answer why I was Catholic, at least initially. Um, my, my grandma tells stories of like me going to church as a baby. And she, I guess she was impressed that my parents would take me when I'd be like crying and 
little and, you know, not convenient to take to church, but they still would. So yeah, I've been going to church for as long as I can remember. And from what people tell me before that, um, but yeah, I guess I, I, so I went to a Catholic school, um, all through elementary, middle high school. I'm really lucky to have, have gone to, um, Catholic school, good old St. Mike's elementary school, Frostburg, Maryland, shout out, great school, no longer there, but it was, it was, it was a great time. Really lucky to have, to have been a student there. And then I went to Bishop Walsh middle high school, also a great place and, uh, have a lot of you know, lifelong friends, hopefully lifelong, but I still keep in touch with from, from that experience, from both experiences, really, I've, I've, I have friends that keep in touch with the elementary school as well. So, um, yeah, I was lucky to have faith and schooling, I guess, kind of intertwined um, all the way through through my senior year of high school. Um, I was confirmed in the Catholic Church when I was, I guess I was in 10th grade. Um, I remember at the time, it was probably the first time I really seriously was presented with like, hey, I guess the idea is like, you're a Catholic up to this point because your parents are, but now you're supposed to like own that yourself, you know? And yeah, I don't know if, if, if I were like being honest with myself, I probably shouldn't have been confirmed then because I probably wasn't ready to, but um, I didn't want to like, I guess I'm kind of conflict avoidance. And I was like, well, it's just probably easier just to like go along with it. So like whatever. But at that point, I still probably would have said, like, I'm just Catholic as my parents are, you know, um, and not really have thought too, too much about it, I don't think. Um, by the time I was in college, uh, well, probably late high school, I remember I started thinking, like, okay, Catholicism is great, but there are all these other spiritualities and religions out there that are also probably great. And I remember I kind of, in my religion class, I was introduced this idea of ecumenism. So like all Christian churches being the same, really, which I guess they were like up to the Reformation. And I remember thinking like, man, I can expand that into like everyone, like everyone's beliefs ever, that they're probably like just different ways of seeing the same thing, like the same truth kind of. And I think that was my operational like theory about life and spirituality and religion for a while. Um, yeah, I went to college, was pretty involved in the Newman Club, the Catholic club on campus at, at West Virginia University. And I remember, man, I think it was my sophomore year of college. I went to see these two um, gentlemen speak. I think their last name was Muhammad, which is kind of stereotypical, but also I'm pretty sure it's true. They were, they were these two... Um, Islam, Islamic, Muslim, Muslim, um, NFL players, actually. The one, the, the one dude played for the Kansas City Chiefs, and I didn't think anything of Kansas City at the time, but now it's kind of ironic I'm ending up here, but um, in Kansas City. But they were both, uh, I think they were both defensive backs in the NFL, but they were practicing Muslims, and the month of Ramadan fell during NFL training camp one year, maybe multiple years when they were in the NFL. So they were doing this tour, speaking at different universities because they had kind of been famous, I guess, for a time for, um, so as you probably know, uh, practicing Muslims fast from sunup to sundown during the month of Ramadan. And that's no food or water, which is crazy to think about just in and of itself, but going through an NFL training camp, like NFL training camp, ridiculous, Fasting from sunup to sundown for a month, ridiculous. Doing both at the same time, like, 
kind of absurd, but they did it. So I went to see them speak and I thought they had like a really, really good um, talk and I, I really enjoyed it. So afterwards I was like, I got to meet these guys, you know? So I waited in this line for a long time to talk to them. And I kind of presented my theory of like, so, you know, I'm Christian, you guys are Muslim, but it's probably all the same. You know, like all, all these religions are probably the same. And I remember the, it was one of the brothers I talked to. He really kind of shot that down. He was like, no, they're not. <laughs> like, do, do you know much about Buddhism? Do you know much about like these other religions he was, he was naming? And I said, no, you know, I, I really don't. I, I know very little. And he's like, oh, okay, well, I would read. Like you should read about all this different stuff and then decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong because I don't think everything can be correct. And, um, and that kind of changed things for me. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That, that does make sense. So yeah, for a while there, I think I really got into like apologetics that kind of started making me think like, okay, maybe I should discern more deeply, like what Catholicism is and if I really should be Catholic or not, because it's not just all the same thing. Then, um, if, if I'm going with this, this dude's philosophy, of, of, you know, the way of looking at things. So yeah, I kind of started de- diving deeper into like Catholicism, like, should I be Catholic? And, um, there was a priest at the church that I really, really liked. And I asked him to be my spiritual director, which is like the first and only time I've ever had a spiritual director. And I think I used that mostly to like get his thoughts on, um, Catholicism and like, why are you Catholic? And, um, I kind of got, yeah, I, I think, our um, conversations turned into apologetics a lot, which I was into um, during that, during that time period. It was, it was interesting to me. He was, he was all about Jesus and he was a Benedictine monk and um, was pretty, I don't know, traditional in the sense of like Catholic church teachings and stuff. But I remember he, the one time I asked him like, why are you Catholic? And he was like, well, really the question is why am I Christian? You know, hmm. like the differences between all these other faiths are like in his eyes, minimal It's like Jesus is the main thing. So like Christian first and he goes through all his ideas for why he's Christian and then gets into some finer minute details of like parsing out Catholicism versus these other Protestant religions. And um, I like that. I was like, okay, cool. That, that for him is like this major, major division. Um, but Yeah, I think a big shift then in my life came my senior year of college. Um, My my mom's really good friend, um, yeah, just a friend of the family, was was diagnosed with breast cancer for the second time. She'd had it when I was in middle school, and then she she recovered, but then it came back. And um, at the time, I was like. My mom, of course, was like, yeah, let's pray for, pray for this individual. And I was like, yeah, I was like, boom, prayer train. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna cure her as if like, that was up to me. And uh, let's like, let's just pray a lot. So I did for like a year. I was just like, pray, 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 pray all the time. Like, say my rosaries and like, do all this stuff. Like every opportunity I had to pray, I was gonna pray, you know? And um, I remember this one, the one time I went to mass and <clears throat> the reading was, one of those miracles where Jesus like cures somebody from being blind or whatever. And he go and he says like, go and be well or whatever. Your faith has saved you. And I remember that line stood out to me. I was like, boom, that's it. Like you just got to believe that this prayer is going to work and then it's going to work. Like, yeah. 
And uh, I remember I called my mom after that. I was like, mom, do you believe she can get better? Cause she can't. I just heard this. I heard this reading today. Like we just got to believe, we just got to believe in our prayer and it's going to happen. It's going to be great. She's like, all right. Yeah, great. Thanks. And, um, and then she passed away. Yeah. My, my mom's friend. So that was kind of like a gut punch for me. I was like, Oh shoot. Like that's just going to work, you know? And, um, and it kind of made me reevaluate a lot of, of, um, life too. Like, other questions in my life, not just um, my mom's friend getting sick, but just like other things that I, I think thought were, I just thought were like guaranteed to happen. But then I realized, oh, maybe they're not, you know, like we just have less control over things than I thought we did. And I guess you can have multiple responses to a situation like that. You can say like, oh, well, screw it. You know, there's no God, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't matter. Or you can realize like, oh, maybe I'm being called to, you know, a little deeper understanding of, of faith and, and spirituality and, and how the world works, you know? Um, so since then, I think I've like not really have, I haven't been so preoccupied with like apologetics and like, why am I Christian? Why am I Catholic? And it's more just like, I don't know, understanding God and like prayer and just like, who is God, you know, or what is God and, and, how does this prayer work? Uh, th- these aren't obviously accurate words to describe this, but we, I don't think we have accurate words in the English language. And that's like part of the mystery is kind of always trying to discover this. But I think I've kind of shifted from like, what is Catholicism and what's Christianity to like, what's God <laughs> and like, what is life? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, delving into those deeper questions. So not that I have any answers, but it's just kind of, if I think about spirituality, that's, that's, tends to be what I think about. Um, yeah. So do you feel like you experience God in a particular way? I mean, if God is, then we all are experiencing him all the time in some way because he's giving us each breath of air we breathe. But as far as, far as a spiritual connection, uh, do you experience that or, or have you before? Or you know, what is that like for you, if, if so? Yeah. Um, we do this thing every, every week at, at Jerusalem farm called shared prayer. When we pass around this, this cross and we just share like how we experience God throughout the week. And I really, really like that because I think for a lot of my life, I kind of thought that like prayer was this thing that you do. That's like separate from the rest of your life. It's kind of like shifts in hockey, you know, you can either be like on the ice or off the ice. And it's very defined. Like you have your ice time and you can like track that. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought it was like similar for prayer. Like you have prayer time, you know, and you can track like how many, how many minutes per day you're spending in prayer. And, um, I think, yeah, the shared prayer kind of opens me up to the experience that, Oh, it's not just this like formal thing that like you say you're Hail Mary and that's your prayer. You know, like you can experience God in many different ways. I think a prayer can be many different things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, I think, eye opening and, and, and good to, to hear how everyone experiences God. Um, and, and people experience it in, in many ways, you know, in, in dances in Lawrence or in, um, planting stuff in the garden outside or in, um, going to a birthday party or in singing, singing a song or just like so many myriad of ways, um, and yeah, having doing this for like a year now, I think I recognize that I tend to see God, A, first and foremost, through other people. I think that's the main way I experience God. 
And then I guess number two being um, experiencing God through nature, through the outdoors. I like to bird. I like to, I like to hike. So um, in the best of both worlds, right? If you can be outside with other people <laughs> sharing that experience, that's probably, that's probably the best. But yeah, I think that's, that's generally where I, where I feel most connected and grounded. You know, you mentioned passing around the cross. So what, I know that's like the symbol in Christianity, the cross. So right. what does that mean to you personally, the, the cross? You know, uh, is it significant? And if so, in, in what way? Yeah, um, I guess maybe it should be. But if I'm being frank, I'm not sure that it is. Um, probably just because I'm like almost numb to it. Um, I almost like take it for granted, you know, cause I've like, there's a cross hanging in the house that I grew up in and went to Catholic school. So it's like, yeah, you, you bring up a good point. I probably shouldn't be numb to it, but I think I just am. It's like super accustomed to crosses everywhere because in my, like, that's all I've known my entire life. Um, but yeah, I remember a homily a priest gave one time that said like, man, wearing a cross around your neck in the early Christian church, I was kind of like wearing an electric chair around your neck. Like mm-hmm. that was a quite a, a powerful symbol. And I think his point was like, it still should be, but um, I guess a lot of people just kind of grow super accustomed to it. So yeah, passing around the cross, I guess I don't, um, I don't think too much of it, to be honest, probably should. If there was a crucifix, if there's like a dead Jesus hanging from the cross, I'd probably I'd probably be a little more like in your face, like oh, yeah. But I feel like nine out of ten cross experience don't have Jesus hanging from it; it's just a cross. And obviously, it's a symbol of, of something more. I'm, I'm in the chapel right now. I'm looking at some crosses around here, and yeah, none, none of them are a crucifix. Um, but yeah, I guess I don't really think a whole lot about it. Specifically with our shared prayer cross, I think of. Jerusalem farm. And I think of, you know, the, the experience of people here, which, which I hold really dear and, um, and try to be present in those moments, you know, like, I don't know what, what life's going to hold, but I'm trying to, you know, enjoy every moment I have here and right. enjoy every shared prayer I have here. So I definitely think about that when we pass around the shared prayer cross. Right. My background is Protestant. And I think that Protestants mm-hmm. probably focus more on like St. Paul's letters and you know, the other mm-hmm. New Testament letters, which has an emphasis on <clears throat> Jesus's death mm-hmm. being an atoning sacrifice. And mm-hmm. my impression from Catholics is maybe um, the C- Catholic focus might be a little bit more on like the Gospels of Jesus, which is mm-hmm. not like a explanation but it's more of a story a narrative of of jesus's Mm -hmm. teaching life and then his death and resurrection but from um, a protestant viewpoint like i when i i think of the cross or um you know i you know or the death of jesus i'm thinking of like a sacrifice for sin um and a standing before God, not on my own um, good works, like if I'm um, earning something to be able to be received into his kingdom, 
but more as like mm-hmm. I've been purchased. There's been a sacrifice made, and on that mm. those grounds, I can come forward with confidence and be received and um, mm. accepted and so forth. So, is that a part of your experience of uh, Catholic thought as well? You know, that sacrifice and um, kind of uh, doing away with sin or covering sin, some, something along those lines? Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned that because that's something I think I've, I've heard pretty much from day one is like Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, you know? And that's like the line, you know, and like by kindergarten, I could probably say like if, if the teacher asked me like, why did Jesus die on the cross? They'd be like, save us from our sins. That's, that's the answer, which is the answer. I still don't really know what that means. <laughs> you know, like the theology of um, well, like how that works, like salvation, yeah. the how salvation works. I, I really couldn't tell you, you know? Um, and, and yeah, this idea of like, yeah, being saved from sin is just something that I think I, I feel like I know just cause I've heard it a hundred million times, but I guess I haven't, super there, there've been different points. I think different opportunities when that, that points come up and maybe I've asked, or maybe the, the question has been posed, like, what does that mean? But it, obviously it hasn't been that impactful because I was really stuck with me. I could, I couldn't really tell you what it meant um, or, or what it means. I know it probably means different things to different people. Um, but yeah, I guess like you said, that, that idea of like seeing the cross and this image of like, dude, I'm free from sin. I probably do generally, again, this is stereotypical, not true of everyone, I'm sure, but I probably associate that line of thought with Protestants a little more than, than Catholics. Um, but again, that's, that's super, super general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a spiritual director, I hear of that among Catholics. Now it's not like, something I hear among Protestants, like Protestants, Mm -hmm. there might be like someone might refer to someone's a mentor or something like that, Mm -hmm. or, um, giving me someone, giving me pastoral direction or something like, but in your experience or among Catholics is a spiritual director. Like, does that mean something real particular or is it kind of a pretty broad term that basically means a mentor or something along those lines? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty broad. Um, I'm probably not the like the authority on this. I'm also probably not the authority on Catholicism. I'm not probably. I'm definitely not the authority on Catholicism. Like this is just. Yeah. I'm the authority on Adam Rossi, right. but but not much else. I kind of have a unique thing, like you know, I have a unique experience like everyone else does in the world. Right. But um, yeah, I don't don't take this as like this is what Catholics say about this. Yeah. Not necessarily. This is what I say about this. But um, yeah, like like I said, I was raised Catholic. Went to Catholic church my whole life. It wasn't until I was in college at a public university in Newman Club that I first heard of a spiritual director. I was like, oh, what is this? And it was definitely a thing that like everyone did. Maybe not every single person, but like it was a thing at Newman to like have a spiritual director. And everyone would talk about, oh, well, you know, talking to the spiritual director, um, he says this or she says this or yeah, just had this conversation with my spiritual director, which is yeah, not – something that I, again, was used to or something that I think I'd be like 
don't want to use the word prone to, but like, um, that, that it's not something I'd naturally be inclined towards. Um, I, I, th- I think the other community members at Jerusalem farm here, like kind of know me as, I feel like there's a spectrum of like feeling and thinking or like very sensitive and like not so sensitive. And I'm, I'm very much in like the, the not sensitive side, um, in life. So yeah, I know the, the idea of spiritual direction is something that like some people are just really like, yeah, it's, it's kind of ironic that I mentioned this now because I'm talking about spirituality on this podcast. Um, but it, yes, it's not something I'm naturally like inclined to do or like when, when, when people um, like during certain rites we have at Jerusalem Farm, like oftentimes we're invited to like say, like share something about this person we're celebrating and, um, and people were like, tear up or like share this like real deep stuff and like tears are shed, you know? And like, that's just not naturally me. <laughs> I, I not sure I've shed a tear since I've been at Jerusalem farm or in a long time anyway, which is fine. That's just, that's who I am and, and, and other people who they are and, that, and that's cool too. But um, this is all to say that I, I think I wasn't into, when I heard about spiritual direction, I wasn't like, Oh, I need to find a spiritual director right now. You know? Um, I think I saw, I didn't, and I, I, I don't think I sought out a spiritual director. I asked this particular person to be a spiritual director for me because he, I thought we were similar in a lot of ways. Just as I, I really, really liked him as a priest. And some of the things he said, I was like, oh man, like I think those exact same things. And like, no one ever kind of put it to words before. I just thought we had a really, um, we were on similar wavelengths on a lot of things. So I thought it was a good fit. Um, all that being said, I think people use spiritual direction for different things in, in the Catholic faith and the Catholic realm. Um, I'm pretty sure our first spiritual direction meeting, um, this gentleman asked me like, so what's your goal here? Like, what do you want out of this? Like, why did you ask me to be your spiritual director? And I'd imagine that that's <clears throat> the way it is for a lot of people. And it's like different, different for different people. Right. Um, when I was at Newman, I think a lot of people, the spiritual directors were a priest or a nun, um, or at least a campus minister, mm-hmm. you know? Um, whereas like here at Jerusalem farm, a lot of the people here also have spiritual directors. I think fewer of them or lower percentage of them here are, um, ordained ministers or people like, I think they have a more broad definition of like, Oh, you know, some dude, her girl you think is wise could be your spiritual director. And, and that's accepted. Um, in some circles, people would probably say, no, it has to be some, some qualified person that to like set, follow these certain criteria. But in my experience of spiritual directors, it's pretty much whatever the person who seeks a spiritual director wants it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for your, your, uh, thoughts on that. Um, yeah. And like you were saying, I'm not looking to you as like an authority on the Catholic faith, but more as, well, someone who's got a different background and experience than me and just an opportunity to talk with them and, you know, get things from their perspective. Yeah, for sure. Well, what about um, confidence? Like, it sounds like you, um, maybe your your faith was kind of rocked at that point when your mom's friend died, mm-hmm. but then you ended up um, 
not just throwing it all away. And, and that happens to some people. A lot of times um, it seems like someone who identifies with atheism or agnosticism, it's because of some event like that in their life. Um, it's mm-hmm. not just because they've kind of reasoned their way to that, though that might happen sometimes too. But what, so what gives you confidence um, that, um, you know, the Christian faith is all, is something solid, faithful, real, that Jesus um, really, you know, there was a, a real resurrection and that, um, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible was a faithful guide for us and, um, and things along those lines, or even just confidence that there is God. Yeah. But um, is there anything particular that uh, you go to uh, or you think of when it comes to confidence? Yeah, um, well, that's a big word for me. I usually think of myself as like not a very confident person. Um, probably why I wasn't, probably why I host a sports podcast and I'm not a guest on sports podcasts. Like I'm not, not a great athlete. But um, yeah, I, I would also say as a corollary, you know, there have been rough days in my life as everyone has in their life. But in terms of like, there are definitely days I'd be like, God's a lie. You know, like that's, that's just all made up stuff. So it's not like I'm just this rock of faith. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've definitely been been shaken and, and, and I'm sure I will again, such is life. But um, yeah, it's, I guess to me, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a pretty, I don't use the word rational, but just, just kind of like, reason through stuff like if a plus b equals c then like like i I tend to reason through stuff that Mm way i tend not to talk about like my feelings a lot like i'm just more of a a a straightforward kind of rational person maybe Mm -hmm. um so i think i had to kind of because of you know life experiences i think had to kind of throw away or maybe not completely throw away, but amends my ideas of God before to incorporate new information, right? It's like the like old scientific method, right? It's like if you do a new experiment and you come up with results that, that your current um, hypothesis or theory does not describe, then you have to go back and amend that theory to then take into account your, your new findings. And I think that's kind of like, me and my spiritual journey is like, okay, now I've had these new experiences. My old way of seeing this does not account for this new stuff. So I have to go back and, and kind of look at things a new way. So I think that's where it's like, okay, you could just throw it all away and say, this is a bunch of BS, or you could, you know, amend the way that you understand life. And I think the one reason I, I, I think have, have tended towards like shifting the way I understand life is because, and that is to say, you know, it would be a shift either way. Like if I just said, okay, atheism or you no, know, maybe, maybe God's working in different ways than I thought God would work. Um, I think I tend towards, there is still a God. It's just that I, um, you know, I'm, I'm called to a deeper understanding of, of God uh, because I think again, very rationally like looking at the world, there is no great explanation of anything if God isn't a part of the picture. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just think that 
you know, science can answer a lot of questions. I was an environmental science teacher. I, I do love science, probably my favorite like mm. area of subjects in, in school. I like a lot of school, but um, science is probably number one. But, um, you know, and, and science can answer a lot of things about the world. But there are a lot of questions that science can't answer. You know, like, what is love? Why are we here? Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Like, these are questions that, that no experiment or no, you know, scientific hypothesis is ever going to address or answer. And even when we look at scientific explanation for living things, the world, um, I, th- there still isn't like great answers as to like, there's, there's always a, well, what happened before that, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I think science pretty, I mean, as far as what I can tell, like pretty certainly points to a big bang, you know? Um, but then you go before that and you're like, what happened before that? Like there's this, there's this, all these elements and there's this explosion, whatever. Well, how did that happen? You know, where did the energy come from? Like where, where, where are those elements come from? Nobody knows, you know? And um, so like even science has its limits. And I think I, I, I super recommend the book, the language of God It's written by this guy who, um, yeah, I forget his name. He was he was head of the oh, Human Francis, Genome Project. Who, they sequenced the Francis entire something. Collins or yeah. Francis something or something. Yeah, yeah, it rings a bell. It's such a good book, and he's um, he's a Protestant dude. He's a Christian, but uh, he wasn't. He was like atheist at one point in his life, and um, and he talks about how his his basic thesis for the book is that science and God really complement each other. They're not like these two separate things. It's like you either believe in evolution or creation or like it's God or science. And he's like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's both really. And I really, really enjoyed reading that. And I think I um, have been informed by a lot of what he, he wrote in that book, but I think he writes in there and I've heard in other places too, like the majority of scientists believe in God at the very least, like most scientists who really look at things like these, you know, super physicists who think about the world and like how the world is operating. Most, the, the majority of them do believe in some kind of spirituality because that makes the most sense. I think rationally speaking, you know, like mm-hmm. science isn't going to answer a lot of the why questions. Yeah. And it seems like humans just have some kind of a sense of God um, because they've, for the most part, have throughout the ages have believed in a God of some sort. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned that too. Like, yeah, throughout the ages we believed in, in God. And I think for me, a big part of that too is like to live is to change. You know, that's like one of those like guiding mantras for me. And, and, for a lot of like human history and human recorded history, um, stories about God and creation have been to answer questions that at the time we couldn't answer because like we couldn't use science to answer just because like we, the world was not developed yet. So we had to answer them with these spiritual things. For example, like why is there a thunderstorm? Oh, well, there's a thunderstorm because God is angry at us. So he's going to like make this thunderstorm. And that was probably the best explanation we could come up with at that point. Now, I think, I mean, personally, I think it's kind of foolish to say, oh, God just 
magic that thunderstorm to happen because he's angry at me. Um, we have an explanation. Like there, there is a very solid scientific explanation for why that thunderstorm mm-hmm. exists. But to me, that doesn't again doesn't mean like oh, then we just throw away our understanding of God and spirituality. I think it's oh, now we have to um, amend our idea of of how a thunderstorm works, right? And, and it's not to say that that God didn't just um, or it's not to say that God doesn't play any part in this thunderstorm. It could be that God is playing every part in this thunderstorm. It's just at a deeper level or a, a more nuanced level than just like some all-powerful dude created this cloud. It's probably a little more nuanced than that. Like there are a lot of forces in play that maybe are related to God or that God set into play that then created this thunderstorm. Um, which to me is like a more kind of mind-boggling idea of God. Like, oh, wow. Like that, like that to me is more impressive than just like, boom, make a cloud, yeah. you know? Well, taking a turn, relationships are something that's important to me. It seems like that's what a meaningful life is made up of, including relation, relating to God, being connected to God, but then to one another. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, uh, you know, in your life, ha- have you uh, gained any understanding about our connection with one another or relationships in general that mm-hmm. has been meaningful to you, that um, has made a difference, something you didn't know before, but now you know, and it really matters or just something along those lines. Any thoughts? Hmm. Hmm. I think I'm in many ways, kind of an individualistic person. I'm, I've learned a lot about myself. I think since coming to Jerusalem farm, one thing is I'm a planner. Like I really, I tend to have a plan and I try to go with that plan and the struggle for me is not the plan. The struggle for me is to amend that plan when it's inevitably going to have mm-hmm. to be amended. And a lot of that plan, for, for better, for worse, for a lot of my life hasn't taken into account like others very often. I'm just like, all right, this is me. you know. And usually when the, the plan has to be amended, it's because of other people. right? And um, I think the initial... Um, thought for me is like, oh, to like blame other people. I'd be like, oh, other people, I have to change my plan now. Um, where it's, whereas I'm learning like, oh, um, you know, a, a life without other people is, is pretty boring life. And I, I guess to like prioritize relationships more than, than my plan. Um, mm-hmm. When I, between seventh and eighth grade, my cousin used to live in Phoenix, Arizona, and we drove out there to see her in Phoenix. And on the way, we stopped at Petrified Forest National Park. And then we took her to Grand Canyon National Park. We went to Bryce Canyon. We stopped at Santa Fe on our way back. We stopped in um, Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky. It was the gr- – we were gone for three weeks. It was the greatest trip ever in my life. Like it was unbelievable. Got to see the Desert Southwest. Only time I've ever been there. But I can't wait to go back. It's going to happen soon because that's like my favorite area in the world. Um, it was just a, a super magical trip. And and it's really the only, no, I should say the only big trip, but like usually in summer vacations growing up, um, our summer vacations were to family members, even that one, right? We went out there because Christina lived out there with my cousin. So we went out to see her. And, um, and that's kind of cool. Like looking back on it, like 
I always had family. Um, like seeing family members was a priority. My mom's has is one of five, and her her one sibling lives in Atlanta, Georgia, which is like fourteen hours maybe from where I grew up in Western Maryland. All the other family members lived within a four hour drive at most um, from us. But even the the family in Atlanta, we probably saw them at least once a year growing up. And it's probably only you know recently I realized like oh we had to make that happen. Right? It wasn't just going to happen without planning, but that was definitely a priority to like see those people. And I, I love playing with my cousins and love, love hanging out with my family. Um, but I think it's just something I kind of took for granted growing up. Anyway, this trip is just stands out in my memory. It's like, Whoa, that's a trip. And when I finally graduated college, I was like, dude, it's road trip time. Let's do it. Let's make it happen again. Go, go, go on a road trip. And they were shorter road trips. I went on, on a few just in the near where I grew up, a few through West Virginia. I went through Maryland and, um, and all of them were kind of like, Eh, I was excited to plan it and excited to like drive for the first few days in the camp. But after like two nights max, pretty much, I was like, I'm, I'm ready to go home. That's, that's about all I got, you know? And it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, Oh, you know, that trip out to Phoenix, it was great, but I think it was great because I was doing it with my family. You know, like it's really the, the people that make the experience, not just the other way around. Like experience doesn't make the people, you know? Um, so I think I've, and, and that's still a struggle for me sometimes, like, um, just to realize like, oh, let go of this plan and, 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 and just be with people. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's way more satisfying in life to, to have deep relationships and to experience people, you know, um, my mom, I, 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 I'm just, I think the luckiest person in the world because my mom is my mom. Like she, she I, I look up to her more than anyone else, I think in the, in the world. And um, I'm just really, really lucky to, to have her. And, and she's just teaches me in so many ways. But um, yeah, I guess within the last few years, I realized like, man, my mom is a really good friend. Like there are several people in her life that I can identify as like, not just friends, but like really, really, really good friends um, of my mom. And like, there's, um, my one, uh, we call her my aunt. She's not our aunt and like, like uncle and cousins. They're not related to us, but, um, it's, it's my mom's best friend's family from like second grade. I don't know when they met, they met in elementary school and they're still like super close. They live two hours apart from each other, but they like make it a point to see each other, you know, at least a few times a year. And like, they were like another sibling of my mom's growing up. Like that was another, like family and like cousins that we had, even though they're not related. And I guess more recently I thought like, wow, that's cool. You know, to have really, really close friends, and like lifelong relationships like that. And honestly, I'm not sure that I do, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, like, man, I have, I feel like I have a lot of friends. Like I have a lot of people I keep in touch with a lot of people. I like to call on the phone. A lot of, a lot of people to, that I'm thankful for that have been part of my life, but I'm not sure I have any friends that are that close, you know, that I can just talk to about, anything, you know? Um, so I remember thinking like, man, I should, I should probably make that more of a priority, you know, <laughs> like, you know, um, yeah, just, just valuing others and their time. So this is a really roundabout way of answering a question. I don't think I, I'm not sure if I really satisfactorily answered it, but I think I've, I've, I've come to realize, you know, that yeah, relationships are just super, super important. And, and not only that, but like, I think it takes some intentional effort to 
build relationships. It's not something that is going to happen automatically. It, it maybe will happen automatically to a certain extent. My own life is an example. I have a lot of friends, but to get to that next level in a relationship, that's something that I think takes more intentionality. Yeah. I think it takes longevity too, that time just somehow Mm -hmm. adds to a relationship. It's not just information. Like if I do a podcast with someone, I might, who knows where we might go. We might talk about things, even their friends might not know about them, but that doesn't necessarily mean, okay, now I'm their best friend. Um, It might be, it's a start of a relationship, but um, it just seems like time. I have one friend who I've been kind of staying pretty closely connected to for about, um, I guess it's been about 20 years now. And um, that friendship, even though I'm not sure we're the most ideal people to connect with, you know, just time has added something to the comfort level. And uh, he's someone Mm -hmm. I could talk about anything with, you know, and uh, yeah, that's a good point. I, I remember one of my favorite series growing up still now, I love the Sammy keys mystery series, Wendelin Van Draman, great author. But in one of the books, Sammy is talking about her best friend, Marissa, and it's, it's in one of the early books because this other girl who plays a part in the rest of the series comes along. I think her name is Holly. And they're like, they're doing something together. I forget what it is. But Sammy, is, all these books are written in the first person from the perspective of Sammy. And she's reflecting on the fact that like Marissa, like Holly isn't there as a friend yet. It's like Marissa and I have this glue. I remember this term she uses like because we've had these experiences together that is just like, you know, it's like this glue. Mm-hmm. And and Holly and I just haven't, like, we're friends, but we haven't had those experiences together. And like you said, it's really a matter of time. Because by the end of the series, I'm pretty sure she'd say that, yeah, Holly is 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 just a good a friend as hers as, as Marissa yeah. is. But early in the books, they just haven't had that time together. So yeah. that's a good point. Well, that kind of brings us up to books. Like, you enjoy books. Um, has there been any particular books that have really made uh, – significant you know like a really an impact on your life kind of life-changing type of thing yeah wow a lot of them um i was really really lucky to have grown up i think at like the perfect time um and that is to say that we got accelerated reader at my school i think my mom played a part in that that's another thing i have to thank thank her for um when i was in first grade i remember having this assembly and Miss Garlis, the gym teacher, I just remember her being covered in toilet paper. For some reason, that was supposed to get us interested in books. It sticks out in my memory, so maybe it did. Um, I had like certain parents dressed up as the Berenstain Bears. Um, I don't know, just this assembly when I was in first grade in the hall at St. Michael's School. But uh, yeah, I started reading after that because the idea of accelerated reader is you read a book, you take a test on it. It's worth a certain amount of points. If depending on how you do on the test, you get either all the points or a portion of the points if you pass the test. And then you can exchange those points at certain points during the year for prizes. And the prizes are either like, oh, these cool little highlighters or, you know, young kids just like free stuff. I guess everyone likes free stuff. Um, But also like experiences. So like a sleepover at Mrs. Engel's house in third grade or a fishing trip with Mr. Engel, also in third grade. Mrs. Engel had some pretty cool accelerated reader prizes. But um, that really got me hooked on, on reading so I was in second grade. I remember coming to school one day and Alex Barkley sits right behind me. 
we were like pretty pretty best friends for a while there and she's like yo my brother walked into a lamppost last night on the way home from this party because he was he was reading this book and here it was the fourth harry potter book and he had gone to this book release party and couldn't wait to get home to they, they live like I don't know, 10 minute walk from this bookstore, but he couldn't wait to get home to read the book. He had to read it while he was walking and walked to a lamppost, which Alex thought was pretty funny. And I also thought, but I also remember thinking like, man, if he couldn't wait to get home to read this book, it's probably a pretty good book. So up to that point, I had read like these like easy reader Bible stories. And uh, I remember I went home that day and I was like, man, I'm going to read Harry Potter. So, so I did, I just like got the first Harry Potter book and started reading it. I'm sure there were words in there that I had to ask my parents about to the point they were probably pretty new with me, but I kind of learned to read that way. And by the end of the first Harry Potter book, I was like, all right, ready for the second and just read the Harry Potter books. And then I was alive and like the perfect age for the fifth, sixth and seventh books to come out. And I remember going to those like book release parties and, and just it being just a super easy conversation. I felt like all my friends also read Harry Potter and also were really into it. And the magic of it was like, you didn't know what was going to happen. So after you read each book, you're like, okay, what's going to happen in the next book? Um, especially after the sixth one came out, it's the whole, whole Horcruxes thing. That was like, phew, everyone had these theories for the seventh book. So that was just a cool moment, I think, to be alive. And I think maybe because of like the Harry Potter craze, people were just into reading. Maybe the same way that my dad talked about growing up during Beatles mania and people were just into playing guitar and music all the time. I, I feel like I was born at the perfect time where people were just like, yeah, it's cool to read. And, um, so yeah, Harry Potter was super, super big Harry Potter fan. Still am. Um, I would, if people would ask me, what are my favorite books of all time? I, my kind of wrote answer, I think would be to kill a mockingbird in a tale of two cities. Um, I've read to kill a mockingbird like five times. I just think it's beautifully written and, um, and yeah, it's just, uh, I'm not sure. I think there are a lot of lessons from that book, but, um, quite a comment, I think, on, on what is to be human. A lot of one-liners from that. Um, I love Scout's reflections throughout the book. She's, she's talking about like, oh, Atticus, I think they're like two kinds of folks. Mm and mm, or like, oh, now I think they're two kinds of folks. Mm -mm." And by the end of the book, she goes like, Atticus, I think they're just one kind of folks, folks. I'm like, you got some, got some wisdom there, Scout. Um, So that one's good. A Tale of Two Cities, I mean, people will give, Charles Dickens crap for, for being very verbose, which is fair. He is very verbose, but, um, I just think, yeah, maybe apart from the gospels, like to me, that's the most beautiful love story I've ever, I've ever heard. Like I remember reading that, I read the abridged version for the first time in fourth grade and even being like a, I don't know, somewhat callous, like unfeeling, unsensitive dude. I remember reading that and being like kind of blown away. Like, Whoa, that's, that's intense, you know? So I've always loved the tale of two cities. Um, more recently, I've really been into um, Jason Reynolds. I've, in a lot of ways, I haven't really matured from a reading standpoint after like late elementary school. Like I pretty much read the same stuff now in terms of fiction that I read in late elementary school. I don't know, a lot of adult fiction just, for whatever reason, I just, I just like young adult fiction um, and I still do. Like I could just go through all the Newbery Metal books and super enjoy them. And um, yeah, so Jason Reynolds... I don't, I'm not sure he'd self-identify as, as a um, children's author, but other people would because um, he writes primarily about people in their you know, young adult years. Um, 
but he's just such a good storyteller. And I think he's just really, really honest. I, I actually had the pleasure of seeing him speak. He came to the high school where I taught at and, and um, did an assembly there. And it was the greatest school assembly I've ever witnessed in my life. He was just such an outstanding mm-hmm. speaker and, um, and told a lot of the stories about, about his books and like what the stories of his books were based on. They're, most of them were based on real life experiences that he's had. And um, I really just like him. And he, um, he's actually the national like writer laureate for the United States, I think for like the next year or so. It's like a two year term. Um, I don't really know what that means, except that he's like on a lot of podcasts and you, if, if you Google him, you can see a lot of stuff. He's like on a lot of shows and, um, but like just listening to what he has to say, like pretty much every interview I hear with him, he like drops some kind of knowledge. I'm like, yeah, Jason Reynolds, that's, that's totally right. But I like, I like what you're saying right now. So yeah, that's tends to be the stuff I I enjoy in terms of nonfiction, I guess I, I guess I do read these days more nonfiction than fiction. And most of that does tend to be like um, either related to like climate change or like I'm reading this book about gardening right now. Cause I'm partly in charge of the gardens here um, just to kind of inform what I'm doing currently or just interest. Yeah. I like to read. Yeah. Um, well, concerning climate change. So it's something you're passionate about. It's, it sounds like. Um, so I guess it's, it's kind of one of those topics that seems, um, so far away from the average person, as far as like being able to understand it themselves, they just have to take other people's word for Mm -hmm. it in a sense. So it, um, there's a, a gap Mm -hmm. between just the average person who's not a specialist in climate science. And then the messages we hear, which makes it a little bit difficult, I think, but just what are your, what would you like to say concerning climate science, um, climate change, or, um, why are you, um, is it such an interest, uh, for you and just, you know, just any, whatever direction you want to go in as far as climate change. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you say that it's, it's kind of hard for people to maybe understand climate change. You just have to kind of, um, take people's word for it. Um, I, I guess I would say that maybe to criticize the scientific community, I think scientists are really good at doing experiments and writing technical papers and finding things. Communication isn't necessarily, um, a trait that scientists, I shouldn't say need, but communication is oftentimes lacking with the scientific community. And maybe to criticize the scientific community, I'd say maybe the scientists kind of dropped the ball on communicating the idea of climate change. Um, this is all to say, it's really not that complicated. Like it's, it's pretty straightforward physics um, in terms of like why the climate is warming. Like there's greenhouse gases, burning carbon puts more of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's going to trap more heat, but that's it. Like that, that, that's really, really straightforward. Um, but, you know, I guess just the history is, one of, I mean, it predates the internet. So I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing because, you know, internet's good at communicating information, but it's also good at communicating incorrect information. So I'm not sure how much that has to do with it, but like for whatever reason, I guess there are lots of reasons to play like the fossil fuel industry 
was way better at communicating misinformation about climate change than the scientific community was about communicating actual information about climate change. As I'm talking about this, probably has a lot to do with money, right? Like the fossil fuel industry had to, um, like their bottom line was at stake. They sell carbon. Carbon is the problem. So it's like, all right, as, as fossil fuel industries with a crap ton of money, we it, it pays for us to invest a lot of money in spreading misinformation about climate change so that people think like, oh, this is maybe just a question. Like it's not really scientifically grounded, which by the way it is. But can I just um, interrupt you for or, a minute or a second? Um, what, mm-hmm. um, as far as misinformation, is there something particular you're talking mm-hmm. about? Like if you were to put that in a nutshell, uh, what would the misinformation statement be, do you think? I think it would be that climate change, it, I think it's it's to emphasize the uncertainty of okay. science. And that, I, 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 yeah, I think generally speaking, I mean, there, there's a lot of shady things, you know, that the fossil fuel industry has, has done for a long time. But I think they're like kind of MO and kind of overarching thing is like, we are going to emphasize that we're not sure about anything. Uh, we, we can't be sure the climate is is warming. You know, there, there are all these ads that are like in papers that like, well, if if the climate's getting warmer, why is Minnesota getting colder? Like these, they'd run these ads okay. in like certain states and then show this data that showed like, oh, these states are getting colder. You can make data show anything you want, really. So like some of these might be the oh yeah, for this 10, 10 year period of time, the average temperature in Minnesota did get, cold, did get colder. Some of that might actually be due to climate change for reasons that are probably beyond the scope of this conversation. But um, they would, yeah, the, a, a lot of um, ad campaigns. Um, and then I would also say just like the intentionality of denying um, the the basic physics of climate change. So like, yeah, it's a little history. You can, sorry, you can tell I'm kind of a nerd about this. Um, but like as early as like the fifties scientists were saying like, this is what could happen. Like physicists said like in theory, burning carbon creates more greenhouse gases, which traps more heat. Like they were saying this in theory works. And it wasn't really until like the seventies, I think Exxon scientists like Exxon knew about this and they were at the time, the largest company in the world. And they were like, huh, we, this is of a concern to us, right? Cause this could threaten our our bottom line. So we should find out whether this is like really true. Like is this theory or is this something that like, yeah, there's some pretty substantial evidence for this. So Exxon hired their own scientists to like go find out like, is this true? Like are we actually contributing to the greenhouse effect by burning all these fossil fuels? And and like, are all these things happening? Is ice melting? Are sea levels rising? Like, is this really a thing? And so their scientists go out and do all this work and come up with this answer, like unequivocally, I don't know if that's how you say that word. Yes. Like overwhelmingly, this is absolutely what's happening. And and this is like late seventies, early eighties. So Exxon does what they like make a huge effort not to let anyone know about this. They let some other fossil fuel companies know about this, but they don't let the general public know about this. Um, So they like have, have this, have this concerted effort to like cover this up and like, Hey, keep buying our fuel. It's not doing anything bad. And and then in 1988, 1990, I think Jim Hansen, NASA scientist, um, testifies before Congress, and and to me, that's when 
a lot of the world kind of found out about climate change is this testimony when he says like, hey, this is what's going on. World's warming. 1988 was this like super record summer um, in terms of terms of heat, which is no longer a super record summer. Like there have been multiple summers since then that have broken 1988 records. But um, yeah, at the time people were like, oh, God, maybe, maybe it's a thing. Climate change is real. And then Jim Hansen testifies. Then people are like, okay, yeah, maybe this is a thing. And that's when the fossil fuel industry really vehemently said, okay, now people know about it. Now we have to, um, you know, emphasize the uncertainty of science. Well, we're not sure, which is true. Like scientists would say, like I would say this in my you know class when I when I um, teach. If people wrote in their lab reports, our hypothesis proven. That was always a point off because you never just in the way science works, you never prove a hypothesis. You support a hypothesis or you refute a hypothesis, but you don't prove mm-hmm. or disprove a hypothesis. So in, yeah, I, I think science or the fossil fuel industry kind of jumped on that and were like, oh, great. Even though like, you know, 90, over 97% of scientists say unequivocally, like, yeah, climate change is a thing. We're going to like emphasize like, well, there are three out of 100 people who ask questions about this. So let's, Let's like, you know, um, emphasize that or, you know, what, whatever it is. And then, um, and now even like still doing things like, even though I think now the evidence is out there, like if, if, if you don't, I, I hate to say believe, cause it's like, um, whether you believe it or not, you know, it's, it, it's happening. Um, but I would say that, um, yeah, fossil fuel companies still will like do shady things and like ad campaigns, um, to like the idea of a carbon footprint, like it's, it's like basically the carbon footprint, the carbon footprint was invented by BP, like the term carbon footprint invented by a fossil fuel company. And which, which sounds like a good thing, like, Oh, you know, watch out for your carbon footprint, you know, uh, let's lower that carbon footprint. But really the idea that for BP, it's a, this is marketing genius. It's the idea that, oh, it's your fault, the world, that we have this problem because you are using our product and you should lower your carbon footprint. It's not our fault for having this product and, and, and promoting it and, and, and having the, the world's economic system based on this product. It's obviously you, the consumer's fault. Um, so like something that looks on the surface to be like a good thing, like, yeah, good for BP, carbon footprint. Really, it's like shifting the blame from BP and these fossil fuel companies to the average consumer who, you know, I can't control that, that the world in general operates based on a barrel of oil or that, you know, like it's based on my income, you know, it was like basically impossible for me to buy an electric car like three years ago, which is the last time I bought a car. Um, You know, that's not my fault. You know, that's, that's a lot of big companies, a lot of money on the table um, have a, have a part to play. So yeah, I'd just like to see, I think, fossil fuel companies accept, accept responsibility and do the right thing, which I don't know if, if you pay attention to life over the last four decades. I think that's a pretty ridiculous statement to make to expect that. But, oh, well, here's the so, hoping. Um, yeah, ahead. I guess. Okay, well, I was going to say, it seems like uh, oh, a I, lot of the, the question is more, you know, well, what to do about it. Um, I think you just mentioned yeah. something about the uh, fossil companies um, 
fossil fuel companies um, taking responsibility. And I may have mm-hmm. missed something you said right after that. You might have already mm-hmm. answered this, but you know, what does that look like as far as them taking responsibility, um, or, or you know, maybe even a more pertinent question to me and others might be like, well, you know, what, you know, should the response be for the common everyday person and so forth? Yeah. Um, yeah, I should probably just like delete everything that I, or if you're listening to this, you probably just skip over everything I just said, but that's too late because it's after I already said it. Um, no, because like, I think it's really easy to get like down and like, oh man, this is, yeah, that's, that's, that's a reason that people I think don't like climate change necessarily because it's depressing. Right? It's just not something that's like, woo, let's go run a marathon now. It's, it's not um, a, a happy thing. Um, but what, what I think is a happy thing is like, look, this is an opportunity to, to do great things in the world. Like there's a lot of stuff that is lost and that's a shame, but, um, there's a lot of beauty and God's creation that, that is worth saving and still can be saved. And, and that can be done while creating, I think a better world for people in general, like this, this could be a win-win thing. So all that being said, I think like my basic answer to like, what do you do? is go to drawdown.org. I'm not, I'm not paid by drawdown.org. I don't have any connection to drawdown.org other than it's just a great resource. So Paul Hawken, um, it's kind of his, his baby. And Paul Hawken's a really cool dude to listen to. He talks about climate change being a blessing, not a curse, which the first time I heard that line, I was like, man, that's a challenging, challenging line, you know? And, um, but he would say that, you know, this is an opportunity to make a better world because cool thing about climate change is it's, it's associated with, with everything really. And I, I, I used to think it was like all environmental things like, Oh, pollution, over harvesting invasive species. These are all related to climate, climate change, which they are, but it's way more than that. It's poverty. It's racism. It's, you know, all these social justice issues that are like these bigger picture issues are also part of this picture are definitely very closely, I think related to climate change. So, um, in solving climate change, if you're really looking to for climate justice and to create a better world in terms of making this world continue, making this world livable for human beings in the future, you are also going to make it better from a poverty perspective, from a you know racism, classism perspective. So you're really solving a lot of issues at one time. I would say that when Paul Hawkins says this, I'm I, I, I I, I do think like, okay, you know, for the people living in these like Pacific islands that are l- literally drowning, like <laughs> your island's going away, they're probably not saying like, ooh, this is a blessing. So like I feel for people, and that's that's a basic truth of climate change is that the people that did the least to cause it are being the most affected by it. And and this is how it gets into, you know, poverty is that, you know, it's, it's usually the, the poorest people in the world and the, and, and the people that have the least access to the resources that, that you and I enjoy are the ones that, um, you know, feel the brunt of, of, of climate change first and foremost. Um, but yeah, I, I, other than that, I do agree with Paul Hawk and like, man, this is a great opportunity to like do great things. And, and his whole thing is like, who cares about the causes? Like if you're still asking questions about the causes, you're just, he's like, you're probably not gonna be convinced at this point. Oh, well. Um, but let's focus on the solutions. Like, what can we do to solve this thing? And I think there are examples 
of, of people that might still, for whatever reason, probably politically, socially, um, will not say like, oh yeah, climate change is the thing, but they will be on board with certain solutions, not because they're a solution for climate change necessarily, but maybe their solution for, um, you know, some other issue they care about, or maybe just because it makes financial sense. I think that's the bottom line. Like if you want to get people to care about something, if it hits their wallets, they'll start caring about it. And, and yeah, I I think the more you look at it, the more it's like, wow, climate change makes, like doing things to solve climate change makes 100% chance a lot or 100% sense in a lot of cases, including financial sense. Let me push back. Um, oh, go ahead. Some Let of, me push back. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. I was going to say, sorry. So, so some of that maybe is a little convoluted because of um, subsidies that are in place for fossil fuels, which, you know, goes back to the history of fossil fuel companies carrying a lot of clout and political um, spheres. Um, but even with subsidies in place, more and more, I think, you know, green technology is, it makes okay, more, and more so financial I, I want to push back a little bit and just see what response you might have. So I listened to Jordan Peterson. He's mm-hmm. a person I enjoy listening to. And I mm-hmm. recently was listening to him talk to, with someone. I forgot his name, but the podcast episode was just um, reasons to be optimistic about the world, what has happened and where we're you know, and how things seem mm. to be continuing to go. And one of the aspects was mm. um, just how so many people like uh, poverty, who were impoverished are not impoverished anymore throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I think mm-hmm. there was a, s- a statistic where like uh, the poorest sub-Saharan people nowadays have the same, um, maybe it was like, um, food, um, calories and so forth as what the people in Portugal did in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's c- kind of comparing, um, hmm. the poorest now to like among the best, not, you know, like, uh, 60 years ago. And so in other words, things have improved for so many, um, people. And it seems like, and when things improve for people, they tend to take better care of the environment. When you're at that really low uh, mm-hmm. level of poverty, you know, it's more of life and death. You don't really care about the environment so much because you got more immediate concerns. Yeah. And and it seems sure. that um, uh, growing financially and uh, being, you know, it's come about through the and, industrial age so you know which is kind of built on the back of fossil fuels so in in a Mm -hmm. sense it seems like fossil fuels has um been a part of um you know good and raising people to a higher standard of living where they can Mm -hmm. um have more time and resources to care about their environment um so, so right. it makes like what to do about it a little bit um, confusing. For example, um, if we were go to go to alternative sources of energy, um, you know, if that made financial sense, you know, if that was uh, uh, mm-hmm. economical and a good, you know, then that would be 
an incentive and would make sense. But if it's going to um, make it harder for um, people to um, produce and so forth, then, you know, it might hamper uh, people's um, uh, people's wealth throughout the world. You know, they're rising up and them getting to a place where they can kind of care more for the environment and stuff. It just it seems to me like it, it kind of makes the response more complicated. And um, anyway, do you have any thoughts about any of that? Yeah, that last thing you said is really interesting how, you know, it could make maybe people poorer or, um, yeah, kind of. So, I mean, you look at the world today and that's like, I'm, I'm really excited to hear that people in sub-Saharan Africa have as many calories as people in Portugal in the 60s. Like, that's that's cool. And I think it's something to celebrate. And I'm glad that, you know, people are definitely doing good things in the world. And that's definitely something to celebrate. Um, at the same time, you know, people, you know, GDP in the United States has risen, you know, av- average annual income in the United States has risen. But if you look at like median income, if you look at the the wealth gap, you know, like the rich get richer, the poor haven't really gone up. The middle class, people talk about like the shrinking middle class, like there is no middle class anymore. Like you just, you have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money. There's not a whole lot of like average people. And and I think even on a worldwide scale, um, that is more and more true. And, and then you ask, okay, what, what's the, the reasons for this? Um, and I think one reason is that you look at these fossil fuels, you look at coal, oil, and natural gas. Some places in the world have them, some places don't. You know, where the country, what, what countries export a lot of coal? The United States, China, you know, um, countries that, not to say that China is this superpower, there are a lot of poor people in China, but China over the last 20 years has, has become a lot, a larger major player in, in world economics, right? United States has always been there. Um, you look at oil, like you look at these oil rich country, countries in the Middle East, super rich. Like they're the countries that are above the United States in terms of these, you know, like standard of livings. So they're like these super rich nations. Um, you look at countries that are super poor and what don't they have? They don't have these resources. They don't have fossil fuel resources. Um, but if you look at the energy of the future and, and, and the energy that, that could currently be hard, so if you look at solar, you look at wind, you look at geothermal power, you know, where does the sun not shine? The sun shines in Haiti just as much or more so than it does in the United States. You know, so I think um, the fact that it's interesting that you say like, well, you know, maybe um, people could become like fossil fuels could hamper um, or or transitioning away from fossil fuels could could hamper um, people's standard of living. In the long run, I think it only improves people's standard of living and really in the short run, too. Um Having spent a lot of time in the state of West Virginia, um, you know, coal companies, pe- people in West Virginia are like coal, 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 you know, friends of coal. Um, but really, if, 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 you, if you dive into it, it's like these coal companies benefited at the expense of a lot of people in West Virginia that are now living in poverty because it's like these, these rich CEOs and the few at the top made the most money from exploiting these workers and that's true, and that repeats itself so many times over over the globe. So if you can 
get beyond these resources that only exist in places like West Virginia and, and have these key players at the top who are super powerful, um, getting all the resources and, and benefits from that and spread out, um, you know, the, the people who can, can reap those resources, then I think all for the better. And, and that is to me, green energy. You can put a solar panel anywhere. A solar panel is a miracle. Like you, you can, you can take sunlight, which is free, which is always going to be there and make power without burning any carbon. Like this is, this is perfect. Why isn't this happening everywhere? There are reasons why it's not happening everywhere. Um, most of them like political and economic, but it, it, it could be, and it could happen very quickly. And I'm excited about that. Um, I think the other thing I was, I was thinking about when, uh, you were talking about, um, yeah, some, some of the, some of the things you mentioned there, um, is that, you know, um, <laughs> again, it's, it's, I, I think climate change is so connected to all these other, other issues. And, and the more you look at it, the, the, the more I think we, we realize that like, oh, you know, like coal burning power plants are so much more likely to be near or a, a person of color is, I don't forget how many times more likely to live within a certain radius of a coal fired power plant than a white person. Um, or there's just examples upon examples upon examples of, of how um, working to improve environmental conditions can also improve people's livelihoods and, and, and bring equality and justice to the world on, on a grander scale. So yeah, for me, I think it's just, it's a win-win. It's, it's, it's really a no brainer. And yeah, let's, let's, let's work on some solutions. Go to drawdown.org. And just kind of transitioning uh, one more time before we just kind of wrap up. Um, you, you mentioned like a motto that you live by to live is to change. I thought that was kind of interesting. So, um, Mm -hmm. do you have different models that you live by or is that like, uh, the main one that you keep in mind or is there a few things you keep in mind? Um, so I want to ask you about that. And also similarly, um, are there any routines that you practice that are meaningful to you that are kind of something you found that really kind of helps you navigate through life or just keep important things in the forefront? Mm. So anyway, any thoughts on that type of thing? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. Sorry. One more thing. Sure. You reminded me when you talked about to live is to change, remind me of something else. Um, you know, talking about fossil fuels, you're correct that, you know, fossil fuels have brought a lot of livelihood, a lot of good things to a lot of people. Um, and, and I think the key is like, they did do that. Right. It's kind of like somebody said, we were talking about on, on the podcast I do recently, America's pastime. Somebody said, we have baseball's America's pastime. It's not its current time though. Like what does baseball have to do to remain relevant now? Who cares about what happened in the past? And I kind of think the same thing is true about fossil fuel searches to a certain extent. I read something about, um, Rockefeller, the oil baron, who really is the founder of current modern day Exxon, um, standard oil back in the day. But like if Rockefeller were alive now, he would be investing tons of resources, everything he had into solar because he was a smart businessman. And he'd know that like you can't operate on models that were relevant 50 years ago. You have to be planning for 
what's going to happen, what's, what, what's happening in the future. So I would say like, yeah, it's great that fossil fuels have, have done everything they have. And at the time, that's what we like. We didn't know about climate change. We, we knew about, ooh, we can make these factories using coal, use oil, which, which has some super amazing properties. Like a gallon of gas is, is, is a miracle. Like you can, you can drive 50 miles on, or more than that, you know, on a gallon of gas. And, and, it, and it's just so compact and so energy rich. Like there's a reason we use fossil fuels. But now we know that it's kind of like in the healthcare industry, like thalidomide was the thing that we subscribed to pregnant women. But now we know, oh, there are ill health effects from thalidomide, these horrible ill health effects. So we don't subscribe to that anymore. Right. And in the climate change realm, I think like, oh, we use fossil fuels in the past. We, we didn't know about the ill effects. Now we do know about these ill effects and there's something better that we could use instead of it. So so why not transition to that that better thing? Um, so that also say to live is to change. Right. And you're always incorporating new information and new experiences to inform future decisions and and your current way of living. Um to, I guess, shift back to more like a life motto thing. I'm not sure I have any that is like, this is my all time life motto. Like I've never really thought to myself like, yeah, this is my forever motto. It's more like just as you go throughout life, different things come and go. And you just kind of lean into different ideas um, at, at times. Um, so yeah, over the last year or so, I think um, I've realized like, you know, yeah, to live is to change. It's it's just it's inevitable, and I think I think the next part of that is to like to live well is to change often, something like this. But yeah, just kind of reminding myself not to live in the past um, or to get caught up in in um, nostalgia. I think my mom was the one that said like nostalgia literally means if you go back to I don't know the Greek or whatever the roots are, it's like is to look back with pain. I'm like, huh? You know, I don't I don't want to be in pain. Yeah, you know? and um, so yeah, it's something I've I've um, thought a lot about recently. Um, also, a, a friend of the community talked about um, the idea of a person versus an actual person, and that's something that I've I've thought a lot about too. Is like I think we have ideas of how things should be and how people should be, and it's not always in line with how that actual person is, and like letting go of those expectations and just experiencing someone through who they are and not who you want them to be is, is something that I always need to be reminded of. Um, so that's something that's been on my mind a lot, I guess, in the past year or two that I try to remember and live by. But yeah, I think at certain points in my life, there have been other like little phrases that have really stood out to me. And I'm sure there are others that will come and go as, as I go throughout my life. Um, in terms of routines, I don't know. I am kind of a very routine oriented person, I guess you could say. Um, I'm, I'm a runner. Uh, I'm not a very good runner, but I've been a runner for a long time. And, and I just think it would be weird not to run, you know, I at least run three, four times a week. And yeah. It'd be weird to, to wake up one day and be like, huh, I haven't run in a week. You know, that, mm-hmm. that would, that would be a thing I'd notice. Um, so yeah, I think just running is, is a good thing. Um, I, it's funny when I was home over Christmas, we played a family version. It was horrible in a lot of ways because my mom tested positive for COVID when we were home. So we like, my whole family was there, like my whole immediate family, including my grandmother and my siblings. 
Um, but for like the second half, I was there for like two weeks. And for the second week, we were all basically like in different rooms, quarantine, like seeing each other via Zoom. But like it was, it was, it was pretty awful. So, um, so my sister, bless her heart, she's awesome. And she was like, let's do, let's do this family Zoom game. Like we'll play the newlywed game on, on Zoom. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that at all, but it's like basically where, where, where newlyweds have to guess things about the other person. And the other person answers the questions themselves and you see like how many the newlywed, the wedded got right about the, their, their, the person they just married. Um, so we did this for different family members. And when, when it was my turn to go, one of the questions posed to me was Adam couldn't go a single day without doing fill in the blank. And it was funny what all my family members came up with for me because they were all like super, super true. I was like, yep, that, that is me to a T. So recalling some of these answers, I said breathing, which um, is yeah, pretty straightforward and kind of smart aleck answer, but it's the answer I would give. I think after I said that, my sister's like, oh yeah, yeah, you would put that. But um, somebody said my five minute workout routine, which is true. I probably can't go a day without doing, I just do like these little sit-ups, push-ups, like whatever. It's very, very simple, but I pretty much make that, make a point to do that every day. Somebody said doing Duolingo, um, which is another thing that only takes like 20 minutes. But um, yeah, I try to make it a point to do Duolingo every day. I'm trying to learn Spanish, still haven't, but maybe one day. Um, but he said blowing my nose, which is, yeah, really true. Maybe not so much now, but during the winter months, like my nose runs a lot. So I'm not sure that's a yeah. routine that I choose, but um, got to have some clear nostrils. And then somebody said running. And I was like, yeah. Running, blow my nose, Duolingo, five-minute workout. That, that's, that's pretty much me. Um, so, yeah, in terms of routines, that's probably what it is. And, you know, just life in any job or work or even if you're not necessarily working a job, like I think you just tend to kind of get into certain routines, which, which helps me. Like here at Jerusalem Farm, you get up, eat breakfast, go to prayer, work your work day, eat dinner, do dishes. Um, I think it helps to – to ground me in a certain sense. And like, um, I don't have to spend mental energy on like, okay, what am I going to do next? You know, sometimes I need to, and sometimes it's good to break that routine and just take a day off and do whatever it is you need to do. But then other times it's, it's good just to like, not think about those things, just kind of do things automatically. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, I've, there's a lot of information and, uh, some of it, you know, kind of thought provoking for me. Um, I really like your, the two models you brought up to live is to change. I kind of feel like, um, I'm experiencing that a little bit now. Um, and it feels like pieces Hmm. getting thrown up in the air and not sure how they're going to come down and what it's going to look like. And, but thinking, well, that Mm -hmm. could be growth, you know, coming down a little differently. Yeah. Um, So for sure. Sure. If you don't mind, two more that I just thought of when you when you said that. Um, one, well, maybe just one now. Uh, they, they come, they go. But the one is just to like, okay, I, I know the two. One is trust the process. And I think Joel Embiid, who's a star for the 76ers, said this. And he said it several years ago. It was kind of like a joke thing in the sports world. Like he's this big star on the 76ers team that's horrible. Like they're, they're – really just complete trash in the NBA. And people would ask him after the game, like, you know, do you want to be traded? Like, like what's going on with this team right now? And he's like, 
I believe in this organization, like trust the process, trust the process. And, and the process is basically the 76ers in a nutshell, like just sold, sold, sold. Um, basically we're, we're building this team around Embiid, but we're really bad for a while and like kind of tanked in, in order to get higher draft picks to get better players on their team. But now the 76ers are in first place in the East. Like they're, I think they have the first seed in the Eastern conference in the NBA. Like they have very serious hmm. NBA title contention hopes and Joel Embiid's still a star for them. And it's like, dude, that actually worked. Like he trusted the process and, and now like he's competing for an NBA title. So, I mean, not that I think sports doesn't matter by itself, but it can teach us lessons about life, you know? And that to me is like, Oh, just trust the process. You know, like, a year ago, I applied for this graduate program I didn't get into, but now I'm at Jerusalem Farm and I love it. And at the time, I was like, oh, this is horrible. I didn't get into this program. What do I do with my life? But hey, trust the process. You know, something's going to work out. Just just go with it. Um, the other thing kind of related is the poet, like something Maria Wilkie, who's a guy, his name is Maria, but he wrote this, it's like Letters to a Young Poet, I think it's called. And part of that, part of the quote, I'm going to mess this up, but the, the part that really resonates with me is like live the questions. And then it goes like, cause someday you might find that you live your way into the answers. Um, and it's like to love the questions, like they were some open door of mystery or see, he puts it really well, but just like living the questions and, and realizing like, man, I'm not going to know everything and that's okay. Just to like kind of embrace the question, sit with the question, live the question. I might live my way in the answer someday. I also might not, but right. That's okay. You know, just, just, just. Those are all really good hope, things. Yeah. <laughs> the um, trust the process. It reminds me of a saying I've heard, which is, um, put yourself in a position to succeed. It's like you can't make success happens happen, but there are things mm. you can do that just puts you into a position for it. It seems to me similar a little bit to trust the process. Right. Yeah. I'm starting. Sure get a little bit of sprinkles right here and I'm outside. So (laughs) Oh gee, maybe that's, yeah. Well, thanks. um, Thanks a lot, Adam. Time to wrap her up. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Will. this has been really fun. I was enjoying your conversation. You take care. I appreciate the space to talk about whatever. Yeah. Thank you. You too. Will. it's been great. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Appreciate it, sir. (laughs) 